0: Thank you, ladies. What a reminder that these are exciting times, especially for us at New Covenant Fellowship. As we anticipate the ministry that will take place over here over the days, I guess, for the the rest of July and really the rest of the summer. This is uh, one of the heaviest seasons of ministry for us. And as I was thinking about the upcoming retreats and praying through that this morning, I was reminded of what a unique opportunity that we have as a church God has called this particular body of believers to invest in our young ladies and to invest in our young men. And he has blessed us with these grounds. He's blessed us with you and your hearts, your abilities to cook, your abilities to serve, your abilities to pray and your abilities to minister. And so we get to be a part of the changed lives that will take place over the, the next several weeks as a result of your participating in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I like to thank you, thank God in advance for what he's going to do and thank you uh, for rising to the occasion and ministering to and in the kingdom of God as you have and are. May God be blessed. We are in the book of Nehemiah this morning. We completed the book of Ezra. Usually when we start a new book, I... Reserve one sermon for an introduction. However, the book of Nehemiah needs no introduction or little introduction because it is basically a continuation of the Book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries, they ministered at the same era, and so it has exact same circumstances and surroundings as Ezra faced. <clears throat> These two guys, one they, they have some things in common, and some in some ways they're different as they minister to the Lord. But one thing they have in common is that they are both men that were stirred by the Holy Spirit to face the challenges that the people of God were facing in their day. The people of God in their day had been exiled as a result of discipline, as a result of waywardness and unfaithfulness to God and serving idols. They'd been disciplined, but now God is returning them back to the land as they turn their hearts back to him. But that return and that goal to rebuild their lives of worship is not without trouble. But these men were stirred by God's spirit and they were courageous enough to step forward to get out of the comforts of their own homes and their own surroundings to go back to the motherland, if you will, and begin to serve in that process of rebuilding lives of worship. So as we read this book And we will also read more about Ezra, even though it's in the book of of Nehemiah, because they minister side by side. But as we read this book, we want to be reminded that this is taking place because of men responding to the call and the prompting of the Holy Spirit and being willing to face the challenges of their day. Today, as a church, we face many challenges. We were reminded in our prayer time this morning in the pastor's office of the many challenges that we face as a church and even as a nation. Decisions that are being made and handed down from our courts and from our politicians. And so God will also call, call many of us to rise up and face the challenges of our day. <clears throat> well, as they were rebuilding their lives of worship, the first thing they did under the leadership of Zerubbabel as they returned back to land, as they built the altar, <clears throat> because God is a God that... God a sacrifice and you worship him through sacrifice. And so they established the sacrificial system. They could connect with God in that way in rebuilding their lives. And then the second thing that was done and largely under Ezra was rebuilding the temple. And that way God can now minister to them through the priests and the people of God can minister to him through the priests. And The ritualistic practices that they engaged in. Interesting thing that we learned in the book of Ezra is that though the people had turned from their idols and had decided to turn their hearts back from God, it was not an easy trail and it wasn't an easy path or an easy life. And we read about the trials and the tribulations that they faced, the opposition that they faced in trying to reestablish themselves as the people of God. And we like to think that many times when we make the decision, say we've strayed from God, but finally we're repentant. Finally, I'm going to live for you again, God. I'm to, I want to do it right now, God. We, we might be tempted to think that when we make that decision, finally, everything's just going to go smooth. And it doesn't. Because of the cosmic battle, because of the spiritual battle between good and evil, between Satan and God. So even when we make these decisions to rededicate our lives, to rebuild our lives on the rock, we can count on facing opposition. However, as we will see as we work our way through the book of Nehemiah, what Nehemiah set out to do when he arrived in the, in the motherland in Jerusalem, he accomplished, and we'll see that by the end of the book. So there are lots of, along with the opposition, there's also incredible miracles that take place, incredible displays of the power of God. We've already seen some of that in how God has used powerful kings and rulers to aid his people, to reestablish them. Well, with that said, we'll turn to the first three verses, and I think in this chapter of 11 verses, we'll look at two things, the report that Nehemiah receives and then his response to this report. So let's begin with the report in the first three verses of the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah is telling his own story here. It's written in the first person, which is actually very unique to Old Testament writings. The only other person that does that is Ezra. Occasionally he'll speak from first person account. But he is in the royal city of Susa, the citadel, and that's the the uh, winter palace for the king, the royal house, because it's a warmer climate there and you don't want to be there in the summertime. I'm told it gets, can get as hot as 140 degrees. But they're enjoying it there in the winter time. The name of Nehemiah, by the way, means Yahweh Comforts. Yahweh Comforts. So here he is in the royal palace in the city of Susa, by the way. That's also where, Nehemiah, um, where Esther and Mordecai were during their time. It's the year 445 B.C., and he is under the rule of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. One of his brothers, and assuming maybe his blood brother, or at least a brother in a Jewish brother, comes to him. They have made a trip. He and some men went back to Judah. They made a trip to Jerusalem. We don't we're not told why maybe it was on the king's business, maybe it was on their own business, but what we do know is that Nehemiah is very, very anxious to get a report. He wants to get a first hand report on what is going on there back in the land of promise. How are my brothers and sisters faring as they rebuild their lives of worship and reestablish themselves in God? And so he gets a report. He wants a report. Before we talk about that report, I think already we see a man that is interested in the needs of others. Now, keep in mind that he is a cupbearer. We'll learn shortly. He's a cupbearer. He's actually has a pretty prominent position. He's probably fairly well off as a man. And so life is probably pretty good for him, and yet he is interested in what's going on in his brothers' and sisters' lives, other worshipers of God. A lot of times our tendency is, if life is good for me, then we have a tendency not to think about how others may be faring. As a matter of fact, the church is faced with that very thing today, because in the very same land that Nehemiah is in, as he writes this book, Christians today are being persecuted. Christians today are being martyred for their faith under the uh, ISIS and other terrorist groups. And it's kind of challenged us as an American church, who we're still fairly well off and have it have it easy. How will we respond to our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted in other parts of the world? I appreciate about this church that we do pray for the persecuted church. Believe it or not, not all churches even think about other Christians in other parts of the world. But we're being challenged. And quite frankly, I think this persecution that's taking place globally has caught us a little bit off guard. We don't have ministries in place to immediately reach out and help these, or at least there's very few. So this is a good lesson for us, and it's a challenge in our age. How will we respond to the fact that Other people in the faith are suffering severely. They're being relocated, kicked out of their their land and their place. Perhaps God will stir our spirits. So ironically, it's in the same place, in the same era, uh, Iraq and Iran, that Nehemiah is writing this book from, this unrest. So he lives approximately 900 miles away, and yet he is very, very concerned for the fellow saints and the solidarity of his people. And so he inquires. And they give him the news and they say the remnant there is in the province who has survived is in great trouble and distress and the walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed. Not an ounce of good news in this report. There's nothing to celebrate here. It's a sad state of affairs. The city's not faring well. The people are not faring well. Of course, the walls and the city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar under the disciplinary Hand of God. The place came to ruins. We know that from the book of Ezra that as he tried to reestablish and build the walls, that his plans were frustrated and that was not completed. So they are in great trouble and shame. The word great trouble has to do with distress. It means that there's an economic strain, there's a social strain, so they're being bullied by their foreign neighbors there. And they are also. Experiencing economic strain in the sense that the taxes were so extremely high. We think and we whine and complain about high taxes in our day and age. We have it easy compared to them. The kings often exacted tremendous wages for their taxes. And so they are strained in that way. But also the shame that he's talking about. They are under shame. They are under reproach. Refers to the spiritual condition. And they're referring to the fact that the people of God, though they're trying to reestablish themselves in their life of worship, are still not separated from the people of the land, the foreigners and the pagans. There's still this intermingling going on that we were introduced to in the ending chapters of the book of Ezra. Intermarriage, that messy, messy sin that we looked into. And so from this standpoint, they are a people that are living in shame. And so Nehemiah's task is immediately apparent. He wants to go and help his people. He wants to help them reestablish the city, help them build the walls so that they can be protected. But he also wants to help rebuild their spiritual condition so that they will live rightly before the Lord. And so the rest of this book, the rest of this narrative, will rally around those very things. We will watch them be resolved. So Nehemiah hears this information, and what this does, this report, as he anxiously anticipates it, is it literally changes his life. Have you ever heard words, have you ever witnessed something or heard an appeal or a plea? You're you're aware now of something that's going on in in a different part of the world or maybe in your own community, and it just grips your heart to the point where you realize I have to do something about it. There's a lot of things and a lot of tragedies that we hear about that they're sad and maybe they'll inspire us for a short amount of time. We're sorry to hear that news, but they don't grip us in a way that we actually are compelled to take action. And this is one of those reports that grips Nehemiah in such a way that he cannot stand to stay the same. He has to participate in resolving this problem with the people of God. So it grips his heart and his soul, and he cannot bear it. And so here is how he responds. Secondly, in verses 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, "O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember the word that you that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. Whom you ever deem by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So says Nehemiah. The Nehemiah has a similar response to Ezra when Ezra heard the news of the intermingling going on among the people of God and the pagans. Nehemiah hears this report. He basically hits the ground. He instantly begins to mourn and grieve and take it to the Lord in prayer. That's the effect that it has on him. He is undone and he is absolutely desperate from God. And these problems are great. And so he turns his attention to the great God that can remedy the great problems. It says that he weeps for days. So this, this wasn't just a temporary inspiration or mourning. He is totally gripped by this news. And so he prays day and night and he even fasts to show his sincerity for a desire For change, and we think that probably this went on for approximately four months, because before he can act, he God has to work in somebody else's heart, and that is the king's heart, because he is his cupbearer and he's under his command. So he's praying for an opportunity, he's fasting all these months for an opportunity to do something, and he continues in this state of self denial. Well, the text doesn't tell us what he fasted. I would be curious to know because we fast a a variety of things. Some people fast coffee. Some people fast sweets. uh, Different kinds of maybe TV shows or pleasures. So it doesn't tell us exactly what he fasted. I'm pretty sure it wasn't all food because for four months uh, he wouldn't have enough strength to make it to the promised land. But he fasted something or maybe different meals. It doesn't tell us, but it does tell us. What he prayed and I want to close or continue actually not close yet. Don't get too excited, but I want to continue by looking at the four ways that are so instructional in the way that he prayed, how to approach God and ways to pray. And first, we notice that he prays to the great God of heaven. Verse five. And I said, "O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Is that the God that we pray to? Do we pray to God as the great and awesome God? That's an important thing to remember because the greater God becomes in our mind and our thinking, the smaller our problems become, the smaller our suffering becomes. That's the way it works when we fix our eyes on how huge God is, how powerful God is, that the little things that we're caught up in all of a sudden aren't so huge anymore. We want to take the time to focus on his glory, to focus on his strength. He is the possessor of all power, the possessor of all might. Now, Nehemiah was raised in Babylon. He's a generation that was raised in Babylon by this time. And so he has been accustomed to the royalties of the courts. He is serving in, in that day the Most High King. So this this king was the most powerful king in that part of the world or known to the world in that day. So he has heard all kinds of reports about the victories that the army has accomplished and about the victories that their gods have accomplished for them. But when he sees this problem that his people are having, who does he turn his attention to? The one and only true God. So despite all of the reports and victories in, of the land that he lives in now, he knows who to turn to. He knows who really causes things to happen and bring things about. His, his faith is absolutely, his all is absolutely in Yahweh, the one and only true God. He doesn't turn to these other gods or paganism, but in the great God. Because he alone he sees he goes to him because he sees that he alone can tackle these problems. So when we pr- approach our heavenly Father in prayer, do we approach him as the great God? Because if we don't approach him as the great God who makes the impossible possible, then we won't trust him. We won't see, we won't take hope in the fact that He, if anyone, and He alone is can walk me through these trials, can walk me through this time of suffering. And if we take our eyes off of God, a lot of times our trials and the suffering just become insurmountable. We think we're in it alone. But He is the great and awesome God. He is the mighty God. Perhaps there are some here this morning that are wondering, how how am I going to make it because of this hindrance that is in my life, this obstacle that just... Is weighing me down. And I sometimes I don't know if I can press on for another day. Turn your eyes to the great and awesome God. That can walk you through this. And out the other side. The God that will not forsake you. Is our God too small this morning? There was a book written by J.B. Phillips. Is your God too small? I recommend you read it. It's a good book. Is your God too small? We don't want our God To be too small. So we want to meditate on his revealed word. And view our God in his splendor and his glory and greatness. And that's what Nehemiah does. Secondly, we see that he prays to a gracious God. Verse five, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments steadfast love. He is a covenant-making love of God. That means that He is going to remain faithful to us. So the covenant isn't just about what we do. The covenant that He has entered into is about what He will do. And He remains faithful and committed to us in His love and His grace. Committed to His people with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Nehemiah says now this is the conditional there is a conditional side of the covenant that depends on us but there is the unconditional side of the covenant that strictly depends on God and we want to be mindful in this relationship that we have with God is that doesn't all depend on us it's not just dependent upon how well we do it our commitment to him but the, the rock that we stand on in our life because if it depended on that wouldn't be very steadfast. There Wouldn't be a lot of hope in it because we're weak and we waver and we suffer. But God is rock solid. And so this relationship, he appeals to God or approaches to God based on his covenant love, based on the promise that he has made to his people, because that is what's sure and that's what is reliable. And we know that he's not basing his uh, his position with God based on his obedience or the people's obedience, because they didn't have any. And he has just recognized in in this prayer his own sin and the sins of his people. So he's not coming to God on the basis of their obedience, hey, we deserve this, we earned this, now we need you to get us out of a fix. He is coming to God on the basis of God's covenant-keeping promise. Do we know God in this way? Not just as the great God, but the gracious God? The God that has entered into a relationship with us, as we sang in one of the worship songs, it is His hand that saves on the basis of grace. A relationship that is not on the basis of grace can be a nightmare because we're always going to wonder where we measure up. Am I doing enough? Am I doing right? But when you know that it's based on God's commitment to us and what he has done for us and the sacrificial provision through Christ that he has offered us, it, it takes that pressure off. If we're going to approach God that works or righteous, really we only have two. I guess we have two options. One is to constantly feel like, feel like failures because we know we don't measure up. Or to be delusional and think that Everything we do is pleasing to God. And that would be the Pharisees or the self-righteous. So we want to approach God on the basis of grace. That's where our good standing comes from. Not on our obedience. The covenant character grace of God. Because His loving Son has fulfilled the terms of righteousness that God requires. So Nehemiah feels his freedom, though he confesses his sin, he feels his freedom to come before this God day and night and pray on behalf of his well-being and the people that he has a heart for. And third, he prays to the affronted God, verses 6 and 7. Notice what he, he mentions in his prayer. I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rulers that you have commanded your servant Moses. So you see there he's not coming on the basis of all that he has done and accomplished. He recognizes that basically Really, they have affronted God. When it comes to those terms, they have not obeyed the law. They've been offensive to him. So his, his prayers and his fasting are good in God's sight, but they don't erase the fact that they have lived corruptly before him and offended him. And so he acknowledges this and he's approaching God by confessing guilt, by confessing sin. He doesn't approach God by announcing his righteousness. First thing I want to do but as I come before you, Lord, is just announce my righteousness and want you to recognize the life I've been living before you now. It says, I want to repent. I want to be humble before you and recognize the truth of the matter is that my life is offensive to you. And it's been offensive to you. This has always been God's heart in relation to how we deal with God and relate to God. It's always been about the heart that's truly repentant and recognizes where we recognize where we really stand. We learn this in the parable of Jesus, in the gospel of Luke. He says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So prayer is not coming into the presence of God and exalting ourselves. It's coming into the presence of God and humbling ourselves. That's what God is looking for. Isn't it interesting that though one could boast about the fasting and the tithing and all the things that he did right and the other confesses what he did wrong and yet he's the one that went back to his house justified? It turns our thinking upside down or right side up, however you want to look at it. A lot of times we put our faith in our works and our base our relationship in our works. I'm reminded of the verse in James Where it says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. What do we do with that? But don't the prayers of a righteous man availeth much? Should we get the prayers of righteous people? It's interesting that in that verse, if we were to read all of it in James 5, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is in work, as it is working. So in that verse, what we find first is these people, they've come before the Lord and they've humbled themselves and they've confessed their sin. That's what's made them righteous. It's their humility. It's their trust in the blood of Christ. It's their trust in the accomplishment of Christ. It's their faith that has made them righteous. It's not their lifestyle. So in essence, there's a sense in which Jesus is. Is telling us not to go. uh, If you want to really be prayed for, powerful, powerfully, go to the person, the tax collector, that sees his need for faith and mercy and grace, not to the one that thinks his life is all together. Nehemiah's prayer is powerful because he's not just broken over the present state of Israel; he's broken over the sins. He's broken over the thing that calls them to be in this position in the first place. It's not just about a meeting an immediate need, but remedy. You know, whenever we ask God to fix something in our lives that's broken, we may not know it, but we're actually ask, asking him to do something about our sin. Because usually the reason we are where we are today, not all the time, but most of the time Is because of sin, maybe years ago, maybe recently. But when we ask God to fix something, we are really inviting him into our life to do a work in our heart, to go back to the source and remedy that. So we say to God, God, fix my finances. I pray that you would fix my financial position. I'm in the woes. And then we might expect an unexpected check in the mailbox or a tax break or a promotion. And yet what God's going to do is that work in our heart that calls us to get there in the first place. And if it's a sin, then that's what he'll work out. So he want, he'll, his remedy to fixing the problem is to change our hearts, just to help us to be more frugal, to help us to be wiser in the way we handle our finances. Whereas parents, if we say, God, fix my children, they're just, oh, my goodness, they're all, "Mm, I don't know what to do And Please, God, work in my children. We are inviting God to do a work in our hearts as parents because we have such a huge impact on our children's lives. And it may be that we are part of the cause of the way that our children are behaving. So fixing things may require a change in us. Nehemiah recognizes that. So effective prayer is about approaching a great God and approaching a gracious God and approaching him in a way that recognizes that we have offended this great God. And then lastly, he prays to the promise-keeping God. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What is Nehemiah doing? He is appealing to the promises of God. He's, he's appealing to the fact that God has spoken something into existence. And when God speaks, he, can, he does not break a promise. He has to be true to his word by his very nature. He wouldn't dream of ever breaking a promise. It's not an effort for him or a struggle for him to keep it. He says it in joy. But he's appealing to God on the basis of what God has spoken. So Nehemiah, like Ezra, is also a man in the book. And you'll notice that even this prayer is very scriptural. A lot of this prayer is Nehemiah quoting scripture, by the way. He has a scriptural vocabulary in his prayers. Many of these sentences can be found in previous books. So he's asking God to consider what he said to Moses about this covenant. He's not, he's not um, saying remember in the sense that God did you forget. But he's basically drawing attention to God's word and the other side of the promise, because he said, yes, if we rebel, you're going to put us into exile. And you did. But you also said, when we turn our hearts back to you, you will bring us back to the land and reestablish us. And that is what he's appealing to. Stan Evers says, he who is faithful in disciplining his people, which is an unpleasant task, will surely be faithful in the more delightful work Of granting them favors when they obey Him. So He listens and He speaks. That's why it's so powerful and crucial that we understand Scripture, that we understand what God says in His Word so that we can pray according to that Word, so that we know what promises are there for us. What does God have to say? So, for instance, If we do pray a prayer of repentance, we make a confession to God. How do we really know that we've been forgiven? How do we really know that when we rise up off of our knees, that we are now forgiven for that particular transgression? Is it because we feel better about ourselves? We may not. Do we we base the reality of forgiveness based on our emotions or our feelings? Because they're not always trustworthy. The reason we know we're forgiven without a shadow of a doubt is because God tells us that's what he does. If we are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So we don't have to wonder, what if you just repented and yet you still feel feelings of guilt? You still don't feel like you're clean. Your mind is not lined up with the truth of God. Because when we truly repent, we are truly forgiven. So then we can line ourselves up with that. It's a beautiful thing to know the promises of God. And we we want to live according to what God has said and rely upon what God has said. And just to give a little sneak peek into the next chapter to come, one of the things that has to happen, and Nehemiah includes this into his prayer, is that somebody's heart has to change. He says that in verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cut bare to the king. Who is this man? It's the king. It's his employer, if you will. God has to work on his heart and we'll get to see that. So as we close, though the circumstances see dire, Seem dire, Nehemiah falls to the ground and he is a state in a state of fasting and prayer. He doesn't stay there and grovel. He turns his eyes on the great God. He turns his eyes to the gracious God. And he looks to him to fulfill the promises that he has spoken. And he turns to him with a vocabulary of Scripture as he prays. As we think about our lives before Christ. Is our God great? Is He big enough to handle the the challenges that we're facing in our lives? Is our prayer life accurate? Is it scriptural? Do we dig into God's Word so that we know that we're praying the will of God? And therefore we can trust in the will of God. And by all means, are we coming to God on the basis of grace and not works? So there's going to be a lot of ministry that takes place here over the next several weeks. And I... Pray that those that will be used by God in different leadership capacities, whether it's little care groups or talks, that the reliance would not be what you have to say. But the fact that God has promised to minister to his people as they come to him in whatever condition and God uses those that will minister based on his word, not necessarily based on how great our devotions were or great our prep, how our, our preparation was. But we want to come and minister knowing that God desires to reach out. He desires to change hearts and to save souls. And it's on that basis that ministry will take place over here for the next several weeks. It's on that basis that hearts will change and be impacted. Because God is a promise keeping God. And we are his people, the church. And as we step out in our weakness and in our flaws, he will be faithful to build us up. And to keep us until he returns. Rebuild us, oh God, into servants that are changed forever by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thank God that sinners can find joy in their salvation. May God bless the preacher.